Welcome to Texas Rising, a show that explores the driving forces behind the financial phenomenon that is the Texas miracle. Join your hosts, business leaders and dads, Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman, as they bring you luminaries from across the great state of Texas to talk business, culture, public policy, and much more. And now, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, this is Texas Rising. Well, good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Texas Rising. We are really excited for tonight's episode to have Mark McKinnon. It's harder to find somebody in the state of Texas with more political experience in Texas and outside of Texas than than Mark McKinnon. As you know, here on Texas Rising, we we try to have everybody have an opportunity to take away and, and learn something every episode, and, and I think there's going to be an ample opportunity for that tonight. Just to give a quick background on Mark Mark currently is is one of the hosts of Showtime's The Circus, a great political show on Showtime. On Showtime. Thank you. And uh, he's a political advisor, reform advocate, media columnist, and television producer. He has been the chief media advisor to five successful presidential primary and general election campaigns and is the co-founder of No Labels, an organization dedicated to bipartisanship, civil dialogue, and political problem solving. For the past 20 years, he has worked for Public Strategies as vice chair, and he currently serves, after the merger with Hill & Knowlton Strategies, currently serves as the global vice chair for Hill & Knowlton Strategies. Again, really glad to have you on the program tonight. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for putting me on the dance card. Really love what you guys are doing, and you've had some great guests, so honored to be aboard. Awesome. Awesome. Cool well, to have you. Yeah. Well, let's let's just kind of dive into it, Mark. I would just say, kind of, you know, we've got really important midterm election coming up here in November. A ton of statewide races in across the state of Texas, as well as, you know, obviously what's going on nationally. If you wouldn't mind, just kind of set the stage for us for where you think, just I'll just take some of the, the marquee dance cards. Help us understand where you think the race between Governor Abbott and Congressman O'Rourke stands right now, and uh, what do you think the, the the political landscape looks like heading in, in Texas, heading into November? Well, I mean, first of all, I'll just my, my caveat that is I've been gone for a while and really focused on our show on the national scene, so I'm not as up on Texas as I have been. But, you know, I spent 40 years there, and I, I loved every damn second of it. And it was a really interesting political arc to my tenure there of four decades or so, which was, you know, I worked for Mark White when he was governor, and I worked for Ann Richards when she was governor. Mm. They were Democrats, and I was a Democrat at the time, but I was a very conservative kind of centrist guy. And, uh, you know, then this guy named George Bush came to town talking about compassionate conservatism, and that rang a lot of bells for me. And I was not entirely happy with the direction of the Democratic Party. But you have to remember, and it's hard to now, but when Ann Richards was elected in 1990, there's 28 statewide office, office holders in Texas offices. All 28 in 1990 were Democrats. Eight years later, after one term of George Bush, all 28 were Republican. And what that really meant was, it's not that people change their ideologies much, if at all. It's just that they finally had a conservative alternative. I mean, back in the old days of the De Texas Democratic Party, there were two Democratic parties. You were either a Lloyd Benson Democrat or a Ralph Yarbrough Democrat. And Lloyd Benson would have been a Republican today, <laughs> you know, and a pretty conservative one. Yeah. I get a lot of calls from the media all the time, every election cycle, about the impending blue wave in Texas. You know, and I talk them off the ledge every time, and I just say, guys, it ain't happening. It's not happening, not happening soon. Probably, maybe not happening in my lifetime. You know, Texas is, and always has been, and I believe always will, is a very conservative state. That is just not likely going to change. And you know, and a big part of the mythology is, oh, there's you know, increasing numbers of Hispanics in Texas, so they're going to, it's going to become Democrat. Well. You know, that's that's a very broad generalization about Hispanics, especially Hispanics in Texas. Most of them are conservative, you know, and especially along the border. You know, they they there are a lot of Trump Hispanic voters down there. So in a normal year, it would likely be, you know, go all Republican anyway. It's but it's it's not a normal year. It's going to be a good Republican year. So it's going to be even harder for Democrats to take advantage of that. And so I think that I think Greg Abbott's in great shape. I think I think Beto O'Rourke is a very gifted candidate, 
But if he couldn't beat Ted Cruz in 18, when he was when Cruz was very unpopular, you know, how in the hell is he going to beat Greg Abbott, who is sure. much more popular than Ted Cruz, sure. has a lot more money than Ted Cruz in a Republican year? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see it. I just don't see it. So and I would just would apply that pretty much up and down the ballot in Texas. I'd be I'd be shocked if anybody broke through that. I know. I mean, I know there's some kind of exceptions and some good candidates. And but I just think in a wave year like this in Texas, it'll be really hard for a Democrat to punch through. Could you speak a little bit more about the the change in the the South Texas Hispanic vote, you know, there's a lot of conversation running in 2020 after the election, some unexpected results down there. What's driving that perception, you know, six years ago, hey, this is going to drive Texas blue. But what's happening in those communities that, okay, all of a sudden the Republicans are becoming more interesting to them? Well, push back just a little bit because I don't think it's really all of a sudden. I think it's, it's, I think it's been there all along. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, Hispanics, first of all, they're, they're, you know, the things that they care about are uh, country, family, uh, faith. Uh, you know, they're very conservative on issues like abortion, very, actually very conservative on issues like crime. And even, this is the real counterintuitive one, they're conservative on the border. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, hey, we got here, we paid our dues, everybody else should too. And they're much more conservative than a lot of Democrats are on that issue. So it's just a, it's a counterintuitive thing. And just, you know, the coastal media just thinks, oh, they're Hispanic. They're going to be Democrats. Well, they're not. I think that's what seduces the media every cycle into thinking, oh, it's, you know, there's so many growing, there's Hispanic growing populations. Therefore, Texas is turning, uh, is turning red. And I don't see it anytime soon. So, is that isolated to Texas or is that a broader national trend as well? It's, it's broader, but it's much more, it's much more the case in Texas. I mean, it's it's very true in Texas, more so I'd say than anywhere else in the country. But but you see it elsewhere in the country too. Mark, question for you. So you, you talk about I think you've got to have one of the most unique political experiences and, and careers of of anybody working in politics or around politics today. You, know, you talk about you know your experience with Mark White and Ann Richards, George W. Bush. I think my my first question is if you could kind of put into context for folks. Do you think your experience, kind of, you know, there's the saying, I never left the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me. Do you think that kind of fits potentially with, with your experience and transition to working from Ann Richards to George W. Bush? Yeah, no question about it. I mean, I was just getting kind of frustrated by, you know, Democratic positions on, you know, issue, on a lot of economic issues and trade issues. And, and that's definitely the case. But I'm feeling kind of like I'm on an island in the Republican Party these days. I feel like the Republican Party is leaving me now. So... You know, I listen, I've always been, that's why I started this organization called No Labels. I've always been right in the middle of American politics. And I am economically conservative, but socially pretty progressive. And I think a lot of the country is. And my concern is just that things have become so polarized and so extreme in both parties that it's left a lot of people feeling homeless. Sure. And real quick, so, you know, whether you're talking about a Lloyd Benson or an Ann Richards or a Rick Perry or a George W. Bush, I feel like more so than other states, Texas has the, this this history of elected officials statewide that just have these outsized personalities, right? And do, do you think that that is that uniquely Texan in your experience, or where do you think that comes from? It's a hundred percent Texas. You know, it's uh, listen. I grew up in Colorado, and for for reasons that are kind of ridiculous, a lot of people in Colorado are not very high on Texas. <laughs> and that mostly just relates to all the Texans coming up and taking over the ski areas and they, and they can't drive in the snow very well. I used to make, I used to spend a lot of time making ice balls to throw at cars of Texas plates as a kid. <laughs> but as a result of that, I, when I was, you know, leaving high school, if you give me a list of the 50 states and rank order them where I was going to live, Texas would have been 50th just because of this weird Colorado thing. But, you know, I ended up in Austin and, and fell in love with Austin. And then I fell in love with Texas. Or, you know, I don't have to tell you guys about it, but it's there is a mythology about Texas that is more than myth, that is true. I mean, Texas is big and brash and independent and and entrepreneurial. And, and, it's, and, and listen, I've spent a lot of time all over this country and in a lot of different places in Texas deserves that mythology. They've earned that mythology because it's just true. And so mm-hmm. you see it in 
in in all the double leaders that you've mentioned, you know, those others that I worked for, like Charlie Wilson. I mean, he was an yeah. epic character. You know, they wrote a book and made a movie called Charlie Wilson's War. But I love that just book. People <laughs> like that who are, who are just big and loud and make a mark. And uh, you know, the and there's a great Texas story that you know that 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 all of them tell, and Greg Abbott tells now, and you know that Texas has a great not only history but a great present, and I think a great future. Before we shift to national issues now, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. I want to kind of go back to the to the Beto question, and not so much in the campaign trail, but it's interesting that the Democrats have gone back to the well with him as their candidate. You know, it, do you feel like that there is a bench of Democratic candidates, you know, in 26 and beyond that is going to be beyond these known names, or you know, why was he such a compelling nominee for them this year in the in this current cycle? Well, I think he was a compelling nominee because he got so close last time. And, and I mean, he's a talented guy. I mean, yeah. he really has, he's kind of a natural. He's got, he's got really good chops, you know, and, uh, you know, the only problem for him is he lives in Texas. I mean, mm-hmm. any other place, he'd, he'd be a statewide elected Democrat somewhere. But he made a big mistake in 18. I, you know, listen, I have hardcore Republican conservative friends that live in Dallas. And in that election, right up until, you know, you guys will remember better than I do, but like September, October, they were going to vote for Beto. They didn't mm, like oh, yeah. They didn't like Cruz at all. His signs were everywhere. It was crazy. Highland yeah. Park, and Dallas, then, Beto and signs then were everywhere. Beto just kind of got dragged into the national Democratic stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. He started talking yeah. about guns and just kind of adopting the Democratic mantra. And suddenly, you know, all my Dallas friends were like, I don't know. I just can't do it, you know. And so I think he made some real strategic mistakes there by kind of taking the bait and the hook of the Democratic national message stuff on, you know, when he didn't have to and he shouldn't have. But Mm -hmm. but again, that's why he's sexy to the National Democrats, too, is because, you know, he adopted some of that stuff and maybe wouldn't have been as popular if he hadn't. But but he also might be a United States senator. (laughs) To to that point, Mark, do you you think if. And you know, obviously nobody has a crystal ball, but do you think if Beto, instead of deciding to run for president after that Senate loss to Cruz, decided to instead kind of carry his momentum into another Senate campaign against Cornyn, right, the cycle, right, the, the next cycle, do you think he would have stood a better chance of, of beating Cornyn? I don't think so. I mean, just because it's the same thing. I mean, Cornyn is uh, – he's – I mean, he's a very, he's a classic Texas senator. I mean, kind of in the old John Connolly mode. And and people people generally like Cornyn, you know. I mean, he's he's just a very steady, solid guy with, you know, kind of comes out of central casting. He doesn't get people too excited, but either way, like formal yeah. against him. It's like nobody hates John Cornyn. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people hate Ted Cruz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, again, I just think he had a shot with Cruz and, you know, against Cornyn. I, I think Cornyn is just a well-established, very popular guy. And that in Texas is still just, you know, all things being equal, it's a Republican state. So if you have an incumbent Republican senator who is, you know, nominally popular anyway with, with the base, that, uh, that the Republicans going to win. Kind of following up on the insight around Beto's shift to national issues, you know, one of the guys I've been following pretty closely is Glenn Youngkin, and he had a pretty amazing run a couple of years ago in Virginia, and he really stuck to the state issues of Virginia, the things that folks were talking around the, on the table, the, the kitchen table, didn't get caught in the Trump wars, the national scale. Taking that and the, and the Beto example, what does nationalizing state races do to the dynamic? Are there certain places where it works? Like, how should a candidate think about, do I focus on Texas issues or national issues? What, what's your calculation when you think about that? Well, I'm glad you brought up Yonkin. That's a great example. And I followed that race very closely and we covered it a lot in our show. Uh, I think he's the model of future successful Republican candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, if they, if they follow that model. I mean, to me, there were a lot of echoes of Reagan, of George W., you know, the sunny, optimistic, you know, unite or not divider kind of message. I, I thought it was terrific. And, and my my whole thing about Trump has been, you know, I get it, but the the future of the party, I think, is dependent if we want if we want to grow it, that we just put Trump in the rearview mirror. And, 
you know, for all he's done, there's just as just as much baggage. And mm -hmm. and I think in the current environment, which is really good for Republicans and really bad for Democrats, if you can have a candidate like a Yunkin who's got all gets all the attributes of just being a Republican in a in a bad economic climate for Democrats when you have an incumbent president, if you can get a candidate like Yunkin who's who's willing to who has the independence to say, you know, just give Trump a gold watch and you know, and keep him out of the state. I mean, look what happened. He won, you know, a state that's pretty blue. Mm -hmm. and, and he did it, as you said, and by really focusing on state issues uh, and not nationalizing the race. So I, I think that I think that's, you know, anytime you can do that. Listen, if you nationalize a race, which a lot of what's happening around a lot of the country, what you're doing is you're making it about Trump. Or you're making it about Biden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's pretty successful on the Republican side in terms of Biden's obviously not very popular, but but Trump has his own problems too. So I think if you can if you can take the advantage that you have and run your own race and, and keep focused on state issues, kind of along the Yunkin model, I, I see that as a real pathway for Republicans for the future. Hmm. Well, to, to your point, Mark, I thought one of the looking from afar, one of the things I thought Yunkin was incredibly successful in doing is accepting President Trump's support, but giving him the Heisman in terms of not allowing him yeah. to campaign in Virginia and didn't want to be seen with him and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. he kind of walked it, that line a, very well. Yeah, very deft thing. It's not easy. For it's not. Yeah. But I thought he handled it just, I thought that was a really good case study. Yeah. So, and this is last last Texas statewide question before we move to some of the, the national scene. Help me understand, just given your experience with with President Bush and, and his campaigns, not only for governor, but for president as well, were you shocked at all at, at, at George P? So for those that don't know, George P is the current Texas land commissioner who ran in the Republican primary for attorney general. Were you given given some of the, the news and challenges that General Paxton has? Were you were you surprised at all, Mark, at, at how at George P not being able to win that race? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I cannot figure out Paxson and, and his and his popularity and his resilience. I just, I just don't get it. I mean, that guy has taken so many shots. And then, you know, listen, George P had a nickname for him, which was 47. Mm. <laughs> I thought he was going to be the 47th president of the United States um, because I thought he, he really he had, he had a he was a great combination kind of of George W. and Jeb, uh, you know, really. Uh, likable and easygoing and very media savvy, kind of had the policy chops of his dad. Um, so he just, he was just, you know, in kind of the, the and it's his kind of ethnic uh, DNA uh, from his mom and all of that just, just made for a, you know, a really almost like a laboratory candidate, but it just, it's, he got caught coming and going and, you know, he tried to thread that Trump needle, which was really painful to watch uh, but it just shows that you, you just can't have it both ways. You're either you're either Trump world or establishment world. You can't be both. Mm. And he was he could never shed the establishment mantle of his name, uh, no matter what he did. He was still Bush, you know. And and listen, you know, I mean, he obviously didn't win that race, and I don't think George W. Bush could could win a primary if he ran today. Sure, you know? sure. So, and I don't think Rick Perry could either. I mean, sure. he can kind of go down the line. Sure. So it's a different state, it's a different time, and uh, uh, you know. So, but but George P is kind of Exhibit A on, you know, what happens when you when you try and when you try and balance that that uh, that equation of, of kind of having you know the, the baggage of the establishment and try and be you know in in Trump world. Yeah. Well, speaking of Trump world, you know, it seems like all eyes are on the race for the Senate here in early November. The House likely go to Republican. Things could change, but that seems to be the the way. You have very interesting candidates in Arizona, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania, uh, all the states that are going to either shift the Senate one way or the other. And there's been rumblings on the right for, you know, center right. Candidate selection, Georgia, with you know some of the challenges, Herschel Walker. Can you walk us through kind of those four swing states and how you're assessing the dynamics there and and how you how you look at that? Sure. Well, I'm in Georgia now, and was last week. For, I was at the Walker debate. So, you know, Georgia was a state that you know was a big Democratic pickup for Warnock in 20, 
and kind of an aberration, really. And uh, I don't think anybody really thought that that Georgia had turned blue. And sure enough, right now, Brian Kemp, uh, the, the incumbent Republican governor, is kind of running away with his race. And by the way, that's a good example of somebody who really, you know, stood up to Donald Trump and and Trump you know, endorse somebody else, David Perdue, former U.S. senator, to run against mm-hmm. him and, mm-hmm. and clean his clock. And I think that's in part why Kemp is doing so well, because those, you know, suburban women and even and independents and even some Democrats say, well, you know, I really I like that he did that. But the Senate race. Uh, so so end and but as they would say, uh, the it should have been right for a Republican Senate pickup. And this is where, you know, the, as you said, candidate selection comes into play. And it's just classic Donald Trump. You know, if Donald Trump saw Herschel Walker on the radar screen and just immediately uh, was tantalized by the notion of a guy who's, you know, a brand name. You know, he's a well-known personality a celebrity. Trump loves that. Well, there's no question that Herschel Walker is well-known in Georgia. But, the you know, the question has been, is now, you know, maybe, you know, what kind of a candidate or senator would he be? And and so and then there's been, you know, explosive issues regarding women and abortions and did he or didn't he pay for those? And how does that square up with his current position on abortion? But I will say that I've had a lot of experience with debates, including with George W. Bush, and I know something about low expectations because <laughs> that's that was exactly the case for George W. Bush. And I've also worked with Sarah Palin so I, when she debated President Biden. And as you guys know, political debates are completely different than forensic debates. They're not scored on points. It doesn't matter what you hear cogent arguments or whatever. It is 100 percent about what people what your expectations are. And so this was a classic expectations game for Walker, and he played it very artfully. Hmm. You know, I mean, he he said something like, you know, two or three weeks ago, well, I'm just a dumb country boy, and I'm going to get up on the stage with that really smart, you know, slick pastor dude, and that's all he does all his, all his <laughs> life is talk, 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 and he's a slick talker, and, you know, he's going to mop the stage with me. That was classic, you know, expectations work there, and it worked. And, you know, to his, even, even with those lowered expectations, I can just tell you that everybody just watched that the way they watched NASCAR. They were sure it's going to be a train wreck and that the train wreck was going to be Herschel Walker. They didn't think he'd be able to put together two sentences and he did. Hmm. And he was clearly prepped very well. Uh, and, and he was very disciplined about his message stuff. And, and by the way, on the flip side of it, Warnock really was awful. I mean, he mm-hmm. did not meet expectations at all. Kind of like Al Gore, he looked like he didn't want to be on the stage, you know, and uh, was just, I mean, really, I mean, just fundamentally blew it. I mean, he, he didn't answer like very basic questions like, would you support Joe Biden in 2024? I mean, mm-hmm. he owes his election to Joe mm-hmm. Biden for Christ's sake. Sure. It's so easy to just say, yeah, I'm going to, if he's the incumbent president run for re-election, is a Democrat, of course I'm going to vote for him. And sure. Walker, of course, said, yeah, of course I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. He's my friend. So anyway... That race, I'd say now is a toss up. Hmm. You know, I'd say it was kind of slipping away from from Walker and the Republicans. I'd say now it's back in play. I think they got a good shot to keep it. Pennsylvania is a really interesting one with Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman. Again, another celebrity candidate that uh, the Donald Trump snatched out and, you know, would not have won without Trump's endorsement. In fact, I know the guy ran against Dave McCormick. McCormick would be winning this race by 10 points easily. Mm. He was a mm. great candidate. And Mehmet Oz has not been. I mean, you know, this is Pennsylvania. Mehmet Oz is a celebrity guy, a TV guy, and, and Pennsylvanians don't like that. And Fetterman is this very unusual but very authentic dude. I mean, he wears cargo shorts and a hoodie. And a hoodie when he campaigns, yeah. He's very funky, but he's like, he's very Pennsylvanian. You know, he's very working class. Um, now, the the challenge wasn't is that Fetterman had a stroke right before the primary. And it was kind of unclear about how much that affected him and wasn't very forthcoming about the medical records. And now we know why, because he did an interview a week or two ago with a national broadcast. And he's got some serious issues. I mean, he has to have a uh, some kind of a device to literally kind of translate what he's hearing so he can read it on screen. Mm-hmm. 
And he's going to have to do that. There's a big debate there next week, and we'll probably be at that debate. And I, so I, it's the one I think and only debate. And so you're going to have the situation where Oz will be debating this guy who's got a, you know, this kind of teleprompter set up to, um, to be translating what he's hearing and seeing. And, and you can, in the, in the interview that he did, he tell he was having some difficulty, not, not comprehending, but kind of communicating what he was trying to, what he wants to say. So, uh, it's a fascinating issue in the sense that I think that health issues generally for candidates, it's a much different environment that we're in now that would, would have been 20 or 30 years ago. A stroke, you've been out 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You're gone, done. The, uh, mm-hmm. But people kind of just have a better understanding of, of health issues and surviving issues and understanding them. So Oz is, there. there's going to be a sympathy and an empathy factor that could actually kind of work to Oz's advantage, I think, for people who've suffered any kind of ailment to say, you know, just because you have some kind of disability doesn't mean you can't function, even as a U.S. senator. And so we're going to test that case. But Oz has a great line, and he says, "He says by January I'll I'll be better, and Oz will still be an idiot," <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty good. But boy, talk about high stakes in a debate. That'll be a big one. And then yeah. uh, you know, Ohio's another big one. J.D. Vance yeah, Ohio, and yeah. uh, Tim Ryan. That's another one where. Trump picked J.D. Vance because of the book Hillbilly Elegy that he wrote. And again, kind of a flawed candidate. Trump won Ohio by eight. Twice, the incumbent Republican governor who's running for re-election is up by 18 points. That (laughs) is a solid, solid red state now. So whoever the Republican nominee should be winning by double digits. And it's neck and neck. And that's because Ryan's not a great candidate and the Democrat's terrific. His name's Tim Mm -hmm. Ryan. He's from Youngstown. And a and a really Ohio guy, mm-hmm. and so so that one. I think the other one you mentioned was Arizona. Yeah, and that's another one. That's another kind of Trump, Peter Thiel. You know, who's a big tech guy in the Republican Party. Thiel's also a big Vance supporter. Another kind of handpicked thing. Um, but in this case, uh, at least till recently, the incumbent uh, Mark Kelly, who's a you know a former astronaut, seems to be holding serve. But again, if, if the wave kind of rolls in and, you know, the, you can feel the dynamics change when the inflation numbers came out last week. Yeah. Because, you know, things had shifted kind of during the summer with Biden's legislative accomplishments and the Dobbs decision. Now it feels like it's kind of shifted back to Republicans. So one thing as you walked through that until the very end that I, I just was struck by is he didn't really talk about any issues. It was about you know, candidate personality and how their meeting expectations are not and the psychological dynamics, which I think is absolutely right in terms of analyzing the races. But it strikes me as a policy wonk, someone who wants to like get the candidates based on issues that is it really inflation abortion or is it more of like how people feel and help help me understand like how I should think about these national level races when you can go the entire conversation and not only talk about issues and it's going to be decided on other factors. Well, I do think issues are at play here because, I mean, the whole reason the Democrats are even in the ballgame is because of the Dobbs decision mm-hmm. and abortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And abortion has played, I mean, that that is a big issue in Georgia, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. broadly, but also specifically because of the Herschel Walker history yeah. on that. But it, it got like 30 seconds in the debate, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, Warnock failed to prosecute it, which he should have done. The, the panelists didn't really follow up on it either. Um, but that, I mean, uh, but I don't, I mean, that is why Democrats are even in play at all. It's because of the Dobbs mm-hmm. decision. And, and listen, it's a, it is a, it is absolutely an issue in every one of those races. Mm-hmm. It, and it's been a big problem for Republicans like Blake Masters is the candidate in Arizona. He's, he's done what a lot of Republicans candidates have done, which is right after that decision, they scrubbed their website, mm-hmm. you know, and they've all gone from kind of like no exceptions, da, 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 da. Well, now may, you know, they're all kind of rewinding their positions now, trying to moderate on it as they, as Democrats have taken advantage of them to make them extreme on the issue. And so again, that's that issue. And this is very much issue centric was, was, was why Democrats got in the game. And again, the inflation numbers in the economy, it's a big issue. And that's why Republicans are getting back into it. So it's a combination. I mean, Issue landscape definitely drives it, but candidate skills and mm-hmm. and 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 basic sort of fundamentals are are equally important. So, Mark, I feel like you know once once we get past the the midterm elections here in November, 
I mean, I feel like the the next big shoe to drop, you know, this kind of hangs over everything in Washington is whether President Biden will seek another term. And the question becomes, if, if he decides not to seek another term, one would think he would have to announce that fairly quickly just to give other Democrats nationally an opportunity to to put together exploratory committees and start raising money and, and get to Iowa, New Hampshire. Right. I mean, it, that would have to happen. Some, I mean, in in the very least, March or April of of next year. Yeah, I, I think it would be insanity for him to run again. I mean, not just I mean, I, I think it's an insane notion, and I just think it's wrong on on every level. I mean, first of all, I don't. I mean, I, you know, I wish that there were, uh, you know, like there is in corporate America, you know, an age limit for. It, it, we, by the way, the chart on on the age of officeholders in America is shocking, particularly given kind of where we are demographically in the country. Mm-hmm. The curve is like this. I mean, most of the members of Congress are like 70 plus. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> you know, Pelosi, Schumer, just across the board, they're just, they're 70s, 80s. Chuck Grassley, by the way, this is a, this is a race we didn't even mention. Chuck Grassley, who is 90, yeah. is running for reelection, for God's sake. That's absurd. Yeah, and by the way, that race is tightening up as it should be. Nobody ninety years old should be in the United States Senate, and nobody eighty-two years old, in my judgment, should be president of the United States, uh, including and especially Joe Biden. So, I think that it would not only be the right thing to do, but I think it would be in his best interest in terms of his legacy. First of all, I think if he runs, he diminishes the chances of the Democrats winning considerably. Secondly, if I think if he doesn't run, I think. And when in the last campaign, he talked about being a transitional candidate and he should pass the baton. I mean, Democrats are a diverse, younger party. For God's sake, get somebody younger to lead the party and hand off the baton, get credit for it. You know, be old Grandpa Joe that like, you know, kickstarted the young guns. And I think you get great credit for it. And, you know, but listen, you know, as James Carville said, being president's like having sex. You, you don't want to give it up. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, I, I think it's going to take an intervention by, you know, Jill Biden and people close to him to just say, listen, you know, sure. just take take your chips and 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 ride off into the sunset. Who, who does who does he hand the baton to, Mark? I mean, what what is that? So what? Well, what I, we- I don't think he really can, and I don't think he should hand it to anybody now i mean there's gonna as there always is there's just an expectation that the number two which is the vice president is kind of next in line and i'm sure that she'll think that i think there's a lot of other people that don't think she should be so i think i think harris will run but she i mean she's that's kind of a longer conversation but she she's getting better at the job but there's just there's a there's a lot of i don't know i just she may run she may win but I think there's a lot of other people. I don't think she's gonna. I don't think she's gonna keep a lot of other people out. Mm-hmm. I think. I think uh, Buttigieg could run. I think. I think the woman who really has a lot of buzz is Gretchen Whitmer in mm. Michigan. Mm, really? Uh, I think you know a, a, a Midwestern female governor is just the kind of thing that Democrats could use. Um, you know, and and there's. I mean, there's a lot. There's tons of other people out there, but you know, I like to see somebody younger, diverse. But then again, I also like Mitch Landry in New Orleans and. Uh, you know, I'd like to see the Democratic Party stay in kind of a centrist line. My good polis in Colorado will probably run, and I like I like his politics. Pretty middle of the road. So, you know, I think I think a bunch of Democrats will win, but I hope that Biden doesn't because that'll really be. A- yeah, on the flip side, you know, you got the Trump train, DeSantis, and then maybe our dark horse Yunkin throws his hat in the ring. How does that play out in your I mind? I think those are the big three, and I think I think Yunkin is right in there, and I think he's kind of you know, there's a lot of buzz and attention on DeSantis, but I think Youngkin is working it pretty hard under the radar screen and working it very smartly. Mm. Trump is kind of the same thing with Biden. You know, it's just, he's, he creates huge problems for the Republicans if he runs. And I tell my Democratic friends, I said, you better pray that he runs. That's your only shot. And that's, that's, I think, part of Biden's thinking is, is that Trump will be the nominee and that he he wants to go be Trump again. And he thinks Mm. he can be Trump. Maybe he could. I mean, that'd be the only person I think Biden could be, but I'm not even sure about that. Um, but I mean, Trump's going to run. There's no, there's no question in my mind about that. Um, the only thing he cares about is attention. And you think he's going to walk off stage while claiming Ron DeSantis are in the news every night? No way. So he's going to run. I don't think it's automatic, 
Um, did he get the nomination? I think DeSantis is like Trump on steroids. I think he's like Trump, but a lot smarter. And he really got an instinct for the cultural nerves, man. I mean, he's, and he's and just that kind of pugilistic hunchback of the media. Really, he's really good. But the question, he's really tightly wound, though. And I'm not sure how well he's going to go retail nationally. He's like, he has a very small circle of decision makers, not good at delegating, whereas Yunkin is. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you get into Iowa, New Hampshire, I don't know how well DeSantis will sell retail and i think yeah. that was really well so given given president trump so with with the recent fbi raid at mor-a-lago and some of the other legal challenges facing president trump do you think that weighs on his bid with republican primary voters or do you think republican primary voters in 24 completely kind of shove that stuff off uh, not, not only shove it off but i think they see it as evidence that that he's being persecuted and and i think that I think in a way, the Mar-a-Lago thing politically is the best thing that's happened to Trump this year because DeSantis was taken off and then Mar-a-Lago happened and suddenly there was a big rallying back to Trump. Mm. So I think for most, well, for all Trump supporters and most of the Republican base, they just see all this legal stuff as just, you know, prosecutorial overreach on the part of Democrats and just evidence of how strong Trump is and that because the only way they can take him down is legally they can't beat him at the ballot box. It would be that's their that's their their argument. Well, Mark, while we wrap up here, one of the things I just think if you if you wouldn't mind just going into a little more detail, one of the things I've always I admire so much about you, and one of the the stories that that I love is you know you were very close with with Senator John McCain, were integral with with his presidential campaign, but you know from from I've heard a number of times you were very clear with Senator McCain that if if then Senator Obama got the nomination in 2008. You would have to to step away from the campaign, and you ended up doing that. Would you mind kind of going into that a little bit? Yeah, it was uh, it was weird. It was a weird thing. I loved McCain. I revered him. And when he asked me to be his chief media advisor for the 08 campaign, I said, Senator, I'll, I'll mow your lawn in Sedona. I'll do I'll do your laundry. I'll do whatever you want. I said, but I have I have this caveat which is that I, I met Senator Obama. I liked him. I didn't disagree. I disagree with a lot of his politics, but I, I just thought he was a good man. I thought his candidacy would be good for the country. And I just, you know, I've been in presidential campaigns before. I know what they do. I see the kind of politics of the country shifting and getting meaner and nastier than they'd ever been. And I just kind of knew where the campaign was going to go in the general election, which of course it did mostly. And I, I just thought about it. I said, you know, if that happens, I'm probably not going to be the best guy to be the trigger man in the, in the cockpit of the McCain campaign. And because you want somebody who's like a very sharp tip of the spear attacking the opponent, right? Sure. You don't want somebody who's like, oh, he's a nice guy. Let's not attack the dude. <laughs> and, and so I, I said that to McCain. I just said, I'm not sure. I said, I don't know if it's going to happen, but if it did, then I just would be uncomfortable. And I don't think I'm the guy you'd want me to be your, your gun man, you know? And, um, and at the time, this is early 2007, you have to remember, and McCain was like, yeah, 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 fine, whatever. Barack Obama, no way is he going to be nominated. <laughs> and that's kind of, that was kind of the general view of Barack Obama at the time. It's like, talented young senator, but no way. was He wasn't going to be Hillary Clinton, for God's sake. So he kind of dismissed it. And he dismissed it in such a way that I thought, you know what, he's so dismissive of it, he's not going to remember that we had this conversation. Mm-hmm. And also, I knew that, again, flashing forward, that I'd probably weasel out of it if that happened. And I really felt kind of strongly about my convictions about it. So I wrote a memo to the senior staff for the file, basically said, I just had this conversation with McCann. If this happens, then X, Y, Z, I'll have to leave and just hold my own feet to the fire. <laughs> well, flash forward, you know, a year and a half, and sure enough, it happens. And sure enough, McCain had completely forgotten about it, <laughs> as I knew he would so I walk in and said, Senator, this is like election night. And I said, Senator, you know, uh, it's been an honor. And uh, remember that conversation? He's like, God damn it. <laughs> he said, you know, but he was great. I mean, he hugged me. He said, I love you. Thank you for getting me here. And he said, by the way, it'd be very un-McCain-like not to keep your word. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate what you're doing and I honor what you're doing. And it would be so, you know, I salute you and off you go. And uh, that was that. That's awesome. I just think that just have such tremendous respect for that and and that decision and for you for doing that. And well, honestly, funny, I, it was it was a really hard as I knew it would be. You know, after you've gone through that whole campaign, you know what campaigns are like. It's just like 
blood, sweat, and tears. And man, when sure. I got there, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> it's like walking, you know, I felt like a traitor leaving my yeah. company. All your family. And, yeah. And, but I got, I got a, 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 again, kind of testifying to just how classy he was. I got a, an email from uh, Obama like a week later. He's like, Hey, McKinnon. He's like, uh, you know, I read about what your decision and what, you, what you're doing. He said, said, listen, I really appreciate it. It's a really classy movie. He said, but, <laughs> this is the important part, he said, I know you're walking away from a lot of money. If you change your mind, that's cool by me. <laughs> which, which I thought was really nice. You know, That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us on, on Texas Rising. For all those who'd like to hear more from Mark and see more from Mark, please check out The Circus on Showtime. It's on uh, Sunday evenings on Showtime. Please check out Mark next week. Mark, thanks so much for your time. Hey, kick it hard, carry on regardless. One last note on McCain. I sure missed him now, man. Mm. I, I would love to have had his voice the last couple of years through the insurrection and all of that. That that's that's the kind of thing we're really missing. I think these days we need we need more McCain. Takeaways. What 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 do you think? I mean, I don't I don't think he's wrong. I mean, I think he's got a good pulse on on what's happening. You know, I just I reflect on a couple things. First is candidate quality and I have a lot of folks and friends in Trump world who are very bullish on the candidates that, that President Trump endorsed, and I can see their viewpoint. And, you know, the, the President Trump had pushed us in a, in a strong direction foreign policy-wise, you know, insights into China, which has now taken the world by storm, uh, thinking about, honestly, peace in the Middle East. That was, that was very Trumpian in, in terms of how he was able to do that. And yet the folks that, that he endorsed their races are a lot closer than they could have been otherwise. You know, I had friends who were running in some of the Senate races on against some of the the Trump chosen candidates, and they were they were high quality patriots. And I can't help but think, you know, what does that say to the next generation of candidates coming up who could represent and lead in our country, but who instead will stay on the sidelines for fear of damaging their reputation unwarrantedly in that environment. I think the second thing is just the constant reinforcement that issues matter, but candidate performance, perceptions, and voter psychology really drive the outcome of elections. And I say that specifically in the context of the GOP 2024 race down the line, where a lot of very smart people in elite conservative circles that I run in are very bullish on Ron DeSantis. As well, they should be. There's a reason why. But that also scares me from the only, it doesn't maybe scare me. It gives me pause because I know the core and the base of the Republican Party does not reside in those elite talking circles. It resides in the rank and file frontline blue collar worker who's barely getting by, who's getting hit by inflation. And the message of Donald Trump continues to resonate. And so while the smart money might be on, a more traditional conservative candidate. Uh, Trump has a very real impact on the race and he's polling exorbitantly high. Uh, and so even within certain party circles, there is still a division uh, in a very big class way that kind of defines who the leading candidates will be. You know, it's, you know, it's interesting. So so two two takeaways that I, that I really have from our conversation tonight. Before we get there, you know, you talk about the smart money, you know, it's so interesting, you know, Mark was, you know, you know, basically all but, you know, he's, he's convinced that that President Trump is going to run again. And it seems like regardless of, of where you go and who you talk to nowadays, people are also convinced. And I never have been. I, I never have been convinced that President Trump is going to run again. I don't, me personally, I don't think that he ever was that serious about a run in 2016. And I think that it caught fire. And I think it even surprised him. You know, right? He announced this primary campaign. Everybody remembers him coming down the escalator in New York to announce his campaign. Do I think that, that Donald, like they can, President Trump could certainly say that he was convinced he was going to win. Do I think President Trump then was 100% serious about being president of the United States when he came down the, the escalator? No, but his campaign caught fire. And, and I think he he struck a nerve and his message resonated. And I think he became serious over time. Then the question becomes, you know, President Trump really enjoyed being president. 
right? Did he, you know, I think he, well, I, think I think he, Mark talked about it, channeling James Carville being presidents, like, like having sex. He never yeah. want to give it up. And of all well, people, I think president Donald Trump, Trump. like running for president, <laughs> but do you like being president? Cause those are two very I, different things. I think by the end he loved it. I mean, I, I know folks who were close to him and like this, this was his reason for being at that point. I would be very surprised if he did not run. He misses being in the limelight, and this is the preeminent place to be in the limelight. I think so. But I think the other challenge that President Trump has is the inevitability is gone. Like the idea that President Trump's going to announce and completely clear the the field yeah. is just no longer the case. Was, was that the case a year ago, a year and a half ago? A year and a half ago, for sure. Is that the case today? No. I think you would have a full field. I think you would have a handful of candidates that would decide not to run. But I think your your DeSantis, your your Yunkins, and you know two or three others, your Nikki Haley's, are probably still going to run. And one could also argue that's probably to Trump's benefit, right? Because if you well, think I about, it, I think it, I think it's the opposite. I you know I think one of the reasons that he won in 2016 was he had a fractured field. And he won primaries with 30, 35 percent of the vote. That's what if I'm you, saying. That's what if you yeah. if you stack the can the field with more candidates, right? Most yeah. people haven't heard of. It's going to be to his benefit because sure. in 2016, one of the ways you know, I mean, he got the plurality of votes because he was standing on stage with 16 people most Americans yeah. had never heard of. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think a race of three men, you know, Yunkin, DeSantis, and and Trump, there could be a very different outcome. And you know, at the end of 2016, it really came down to Rubio and Cruz, who could have one of whom could have dropped out and endorsed the other, and Trump would have been crushed. But they both chose to to lean forward, and you can debate that decision. And Trump won because of that divided majority. You know, if it comes down to Trump, DeSantis, and and Yunkin. You know, I can see the that the Yunkins and DeSantis is splitting the vote because both of those certainly aren't going to pull from the 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 Trump court, even if that's still a a plurality rather than a majority. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, I think Yunkin and DeSantis have to come to some sort of a a detente halfway through the primary if they truly want to stop Trump. But maybe they don't. Maybe they're maybe they make some deal on the side and you know move forward. Knowing Yunkin, I don't necessarily think it would be him but who knows all those guys have have the capability and desire to to lead our country and there's there's two and a half years to go who knows what happens it's a long road ahead i will just say and that, that's one of those things where you know on a previous podcast we talked about how you're you were in the past you've been that lone vote right sometimes <laughs> in the student senate well i'll yeah. tell you what I, i'm happy to be the lone vote saying that i just don't believe that that president trump's going to run again and if yeah. i had to bet a dollar today i would so you know, really, there are betting markets where you can make that that controller bet. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be really money for you and your wife. See how that goes. <laughs> but the other thing I would just the other takeaway for me is I just think Mark's experience is so unique, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, growing up in, in Texas politics, you know, Governor Mark White and Richards, right? One of the biggest names in, in the history of Texas politics. And then going from Ann Richards to George W. Bush, right? I mean, so it's you know, he's he's seen both both sides of the aisle in Texas and and really as we kind of talked about as he talked about really kind of changed because of the changing nature of of the Democratic Party as opposed to him changing right and so I just wonder how many people like Mark there are across the state and it's just interesting to see kind of the ebb and flow of, of politics over time and and how that happens yeah he is he's an example of uh what drove politics in a in an earlier generation. I think that one of the questions I didn't get to ask is we didn't have time, but with hyper-partisanship, it's harder to strike those middle of the road compromises, you know, starting no labels, trying to be nonpartisan. You know, a good friend of mine, Rye Barcott, runs a group called With Honor that's trying to get veterans from across the aisle to run and, and do legislation in Congress that's bipartisan. And both parts of the of the the parties get immense pushback from their leadership and the right or left wings of their parties encourage them not to do partnerships like that you know mark's philosophy is is critical and it's one that's that's not as common anymore and there there are consequences good and bad for that oh i think the other challenge there too is you know and i think it's so easy i'm a fundamental believer in in personal accountability right and 
that that I am am responsible and accountable for a lot of what goes on in government. And it's so easy to say, oh, well, the social media algorithm divides us as a nation. Oh, well, you know, people pick their own news today and they have, you know, kind of ideological 24-hour news stations that they get to watch and separate themselves into camps. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, again, candidates more so than probably anybody else in the marketplace react according to how they're incentivized. And I think part of the challenge, especially in Texas, if you look back, dating back to like 1992, you know, less than 10% of, of registered Republicans are, are voting in primaries. You know what I mean? So I think the fundamental challenge is if people don't like the tone of politics, show up. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, nobody yeah. shows up anymore. And, and that's one of those things that like that's that's not a problem in Austin. That's not a yeah. problem in Washington. That's a problem in your own living room. You know what well, I mean? Like, yeah, it's not just national. I was at an event last week with the mayor of Fort Worth, Maddie Parker. And she mentioned, you know, when she won her election and she justifiably won it, 15% turnout in Fort Worth, like 15% of the voters came out on a May morning and said, I'm going to select my city leader. And in many ways, those local races have far more impact Completely. on our native experience than nationally. Completely. So one, if you are voting in those, you have a, your vote does matter a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're not, that's a chance to have huge impact. And that can shift. You know, you think about 2 to 3% of the population in that 15%. Like you go from 7% voting for you to nine to 10%, you you win, right? Mm -hmm. And like that small shift can can change the whole paradigm in the conversation in the country. I don't think people realize how thin the margins are and a couple of people mobilizing actually will drive drive change. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Well, great, great discussion. I'm, I'm so glad we could have Mark on. Appreciate the discussion, Ben. Thanks everybody for tuning in to another episode of Texas Rising. Thank you for listening to another episode of Texas Rising with Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's it for us this week. And remember, folks, keep on the straight and narrow. Don't mess with Texas. And we'll see you next week on Texas Rising.